Hi there, and welcome to a different way of seeing. Have you ever wondered how a disabled person lives their life? Join our host Lois Drachen as she chats to people about work, education, travel, sport, the arts, and leisure, and the tools and techniques they use to live their lives with the disability. And now, on with the show. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of A Different Way of Seeing, a podcast where we talk all things disability. I'm your host, Lois Strachan. Today, we are having this conversation about the second aspect of the question of employability within the disability sector. And as with the last conversation, we're reconnecting with inclusion specialist, Jeremy Opperman. Jeremy, how are you doing today? Oh, Lois, thank you. It's good to be back. Um, thank you very much. So what are we going to be talking about today? So just to remind listeners that last time in the last episode, I um, I basically explained a model that I've, I've been working on for many years, uh, which pretty much um, explains both the the lack of success in employing people with disabilities, particularly in South Africa, and two, provides a solution to perhaps increase the employability of persons with disabilities um, in our corporate and uh, um, public sector environment. Um, and just so, just to recap a little, we call this the trinocular view, a three lens view. Um, or I also known, I also have known to call it the perspective view, where we look at, at three elements rather than just desperately trying to understand why we can't employ people with disabilities and wondering why we're not succeeding. And so last episode, we spoke about the compliance view or legislative or compliance view, where I, I spoke about the fixation on compliance. And today, we're going to be talking a little bit about the human rights view. So that's two lenses that we'll be dealing with. So last list, last time we spoke about the perspective, the um, compliance legislative perspective, one lens. Today we're going to be talking about the human rights lens. And next episode we'll talk about the business case lens or business case view. Okay, so, so what do we when we talk about the human rights lens, what are we really talking about? Okay, so because disability has been rendered invisible for millennia, and we have come out of, well, not come out of, we are still largely um, in the shadow of, of what uh, we call loosely the medical model way of looking at disability, which essentially means looking at disability as a problem of the individual, um, as opposed to the social model, which says, well, actually, we need to focus more on the barriers, which is the thing that's actually preventing people with disabilities from accessing mainstream society. So what I've done here in the, the human rights view, in my view, is if you don't understand the reality of disability in a society, then how on earth can you actually be expected to deliver when it comes to employing people with disabilities. If you don't understand the issues at stake, the issues that influence the employability of people with disability. Uh, and so that's a basket of things I loosely call the reality check or the reality or, or the human rights reality check. So what is the status quo of people with disabilities? Um, anywhere in the world, if you like, but obviously this is our country, so in this country. But I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not adverse to, to, to recognizing that in many places of the world, people with disabilities, um, reality is invariably compromised compared to able-bodied people. That's the yeah. point. I so think that's, that's, that's what quite, we're doing here. I think that's quite true because, you know, just having had conversations with people across the world, there are definite trends and similarities in the in the challenges that we face 
And Absolutely. Many of those do impact on the ability for someone with a disability to find and keep employment. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's what I'm what I'm trying to illustrate here is that and it's all very well saying that in an abstract, but we need to explain it. We literally need to unpack those very issues, which is why I call it the reality check. Another way I call it, when I teach this stuff in workshops, I I talk about fact over myth. Because we have been existing in a cloud of mythology around disability, um, an enormous amount of misinformation, um, wrong information, which is where the mythology comes from. And so there's a lot of assumptions made based on nonsense, frankly. Um, and the reason for that is because people with disabilities have been so rendered invisible. And there's been so little experience of people with disabilities in every frame of, 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 of life. You know, it's interesting. Recently, I was in America um, and I, I noticed something, people asking me a question which I was fascinated about. And then the other day, I met a European person, two, in fact, in the same sort of evening. And they asked me the same question. And do you know what that question was, Lois? No, tell me. It was, do, do you work? And those were both people from outside of our country. The Americans, a couple of Americans said, do you work? Now, I'm a nearly a 60-year-old man who's worked for 38 years, um, you know, and I, I, I was incredulous, incredulous. The, the person from Europe Clamped her mouth over her hand over her mouth and said, oh, oh, that was that. that was a really thoughtless, stupid question. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But it, it illustrates something, doesn't it? Well, it, it does, you know, and again, I, I don't know all the statistics, but the 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 stats that I do remember reading is that when it comes to persons with disabilities in the US, the employment rate is at around 30%. Um, yeah. I don't know. Some countries in Europe are higher, some are lower. It's, but it's, it's a challenge that we're all facing. But exactly. I want to dig down into, you know, what are the kind of factors that okay. we're talking about? All right. So, so, so let me go for it and, and, um, interject anytime you like, but let's, let's list what I call fact over myth. There's a, a, a litany of reality checks. So the first reality is that it's way bigger than we think. So everybody, people often in corporates and outside are, are often gobsmacked to know that the numbers are as high as they are. So the UN, I remember, uh, before 20, uh, 2007, um, the UN thought it was around 10%. After 2007, they actually upped that to 15%, um, meaning that you can expect nothing less than about 15% of your population to be made up of persons with disabilities. Now, that's a, that's already an interesting thing. Now, if you look, if you dig a little deeper, it's really important sometimes to do this. You've got to dig a little deeper and you've got to, or drill down is probably a better word, um, and you realize that developing countries, which is, of course, includes our own, tend to have more people with disabilities than uh, developed countries. And the reason are very clear, because developing countries tend to create more disabilities for themselves. And the ways you can do that, normally I would workshop this, but normally what you could you can you can absolutely guarantee that they will have more violent crime. Violent crime, by the way, is the is the single biggest cause of late onset disability, particularly physical disability. Secondly, developing countries categorically have more motor vehicle accidents. This is irrefutable, by the way. There's absolutely no way that you can deny these, these statistics. Um, and so that's another cause. Uh, developing countries have more poverty. Poverty um, and disability have a direct link. In other words, if a woman gives birth in a deep rural poor area and has no access to primary medical care, and the child is born with a, with a cord around its neck, um, the chances are that that child will be compromised. Now, had she been born in a primary healthcare environment, that child, it may, they may very well have picked up that compromise, and they may very well have been able to do something about it. 
Um, I'm, it's a it's a flippant argument, but the point is what I'm making here is that very often no access to primary health care can result in disabilities. For instance, in our country, we have one of the largest populations of preventable blindness in the world. Uh, diabetes, um, glaucoma, um, and um, what's the um, glaucoma, diabetes, and cataracts, you know, all of which are preventable. But without primary care, health care, those things become unnecessarily disabling. And so that's a that's an example. So I don't want to get stuck on this thing, but the point here I'm making is that developing countries will always have more people with disabilities. And so we're looking closer to 20 even more percent of, of a population being made up of persons with disabilities. So that's a an incredibly big number. Yeah, that's so one in take, eight. It's one absolutely. in eight people. One well, in, yeah. One in, if you're talking no, it's one in five. Twenty percent is one in five. So, for instance, so we have our country. We have sixty million people. So that's 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 why we have one point two. You know, we have sixty million people, which is if you take ten percent of sixty million, that's six times two to make twenty. That's twelve million people in our country will have some form of disability. It won't all be chronic. It won't all be physical. It won't all be sensory. It won't all be psychosocial. But that gives you an idea of the breadth of the thing. So that's the first thing, Lois, I want to illustrate. That we, they tend to, because you don't see people with disabilities in society. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the um, Association of Persons with Disabilities have long as estimated that they're nothing less than half a million wheelchair users in this country. And when I tell people that, they're fascinated because they know they do not see half a million wheelchair users. Similarly, you and I both know that there's over a million blind people in this country. Yeah. Similarly, they are amazed to hear that. They don't see a million blind people in this country. And just because you don't see them doesn't mean they don't exist. So that's the first thing. The second reality check, serious reality check, is that people with disabilities are in this country, well, okay, universally, universally underemployed. I mean, that's a categorical fact all around the world. There is underemployment of persons with disabilities. Sometimes, um, sometimes very generous social states cause that problem, which is one of the reasons why the European woman said to me, do you work? Because she comes from an environment which is a very benign social state where as a person with a disability, they literally wouldn't have to because the state literally would look after them. And we don't come from a social state. So, we have an incredibly high percentage of unemployment in this country. The Department of Labor estimates that it could be as high as 99%. I don't believe that. I believe that because so many of us are under the radar, self-employed, that sort of thing, there's probably more people employed than the stats will, will tell you, but not much more. You're certainly talking about 90, 95% of persons with disabilities unemployed. Now that makes a huge strain on the on the on society. By the way, they don't all get disability grants. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, and even if they did, the disability grant is so minimal that it actually wouldn't it wouldn't really help. But it's a drain because other members of the family and the society, uh, you know, very often have to carry that burden. That's and this okay. So that's 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 the second. The third one in this instance, is very important, is and it's a strong mythology, is that, and, and remember what I said about underemployment, okay? So here's a, here's a quite a complex one in the reality check, is this. There's two ways of acquiring a disability. You can be born with it or get it slowly like me, and, and then you can get it later in life like you, okay? And you got yours when you were in your early 20s, I recall. Yes, that's Now, great. that's the average. So between 18 and 35 is the average time where the most people acquire disabilities. Then it plateaus out after that for a while. And after 55, you get more people acquiring disability. So you've got issues occurring which are closer to age-related issues, mm. hearing, visual, physical, that sort of thing. But the majority of people are rendered disabled between 18 and 35. Uh, any variety of 
of issues could cause a disability, as you well know. So now, here's the thing. It's, remember what I said, the majority of people with disabilities in the world got their disabilities later in life. So the ratio apparently, and this is not easily proved, but the ratio apparently is around 80-20. In other words, only 20% of people with disabilities were born with their disabilities or acquired it slowly at, at a young age like me. That's quite the a other fascinating 80- stat. I mean, if it's if it's so different that it's 80-20, I mean, that that's quite a significant difference. That's a hell of a difference. That's a hell of a difference. Now, the significance is important here because it talks to education. Mm-hmm. So if if you have – now, in our country, we have a very, very, very broken uh, um, special education society, uh, system, broken in the sense of limited resources. So there are about 36,000 conventional schools in this country, and there are only 400 special schools. And what's really horrifying is that less than a hundred of those go to matric, matric being grade 12. Now, what that means is that there's a big compromise of the kids that go to those special schools. The majority, vast majority of them will not even finish with a grade 12. Those that will finish with a grade 12 will, very few of those schools offer a university exemption. So now that's now remember, those are typically the people who got their disabilities at birth or very young because they had to go. The importance of understanding this ratio, the 80-20 ratio, is because 80% of disability acquired later. And they they already went through school. So you, for instance, went through a conventional normal school. Right, but you went to a, a normal mainstream school because you yeah. weren't blind yet. Yeah. Now, and then I think you were at university when you became blind, right? I was. Now that means you already had a decent mainstream education, and you were already at university, and you finished. Okay, so here's the here's where the myth. I'm I've scrambled this a little bit, but here's the mythology. The myth is that that many people believe that the unemployment rate is directly linked to the poor skills um, set of people with disabilities because it is assumed that people with disabilities have a lower skills set. Now, here's the thing. It's true for people who got their disabilities young because the majority of them will have to have gone through special school. Not have to. Many of them bypass it these days and they manage to go through mainstream, but it's rare. Uh, And I did that, by the way. I went through a mainstream school not a blind school. Now, so that's the first thing. But the the majority of people with disabilities who got their disabilities later almost always went through mainstream school, probably went through something post-grade post 12, university, college, um, already began work. And so, and many became disabled in their 30s. They've already got post-matric, they've got their, they've, you know, they've got their, they, they started a job already, they've got careers, they've got experience. And so it belies the mythology about lower skill set. And that's really important to, to take on, and corporates need to understand this. Now, let's take you to the fourth um, reality check, is stereotyping. Mm. Now, yep. We know all about so you and I both know, because both of us have spent our time on the phone. <laughs> so. You know, a classic stereotypic job for a person with a, a blind person, in, as we both know, in the old days particularly, not so common now, but it was very common in the old days, was switchboard operator. Yes, and it's a it's quite interesting because I mean it's a it's a thing that that the blind have been encouraged to do for quite literally a hundred years. So straight straight after the First World War, um, the telephone by now was it's literally forty five years old. And there were things called switchboards that have now, you know, they've become more sophisticated. And they they realized that the blind were able to do this job. Now, in those days, they were more egalitarian um, in, in, in most countries in the world. And so it was no shame. It was no shame to be a switchboard operator. It was actually it was a job. And so it became a thing. 
And so for a hundred years, blind people were encouraged, for instance, you know, switchboard, switchboard, switchboard. It's taught in just about every blind school in this country, what was. And so that's a, that's a classic stereotype. But let's move away from the blind stereotype here. But what stereotyping is, is where um, an employer believes that he knows, he or she knows what a person with a disability can do. So what their abilities allow them to do. That is seriously dangerous yes, because you're making, you're making an assumption there. Now, And it's an assumption if, that isn't based on information. It's based yeah. on a social stereotype exactly. that's often limited. Precisely. So it's in, in completely wrong information invariably. Because it came out of our old paradigm, the medical model paradigm, in which we were all taught that people with disabilities can't do certain things because of their disabilities. It's only now that youngsters are beginning to embrace the social model and really getting it and understanding the barriers are the actual cause. And so the stereotype trap, I call it, is enormously serious when it comes to the the employability of persons with disabilities, which is why. So about 15 years ago, uh, more actually, nearly 20 years ago, in fact, exactly 20 years ago, I created a, a particular product, which I no longer practice, but at the time we used to offer a survey to our corporate clients to measure, one, the attitudes of management who managed people with disabilities, uh, or two, um, the attitudes of people with disabilities who were employed in various companies. And so I was able to interview, um, we were able to interview nearly 200 people with disabilities around the country and who all were employed, every one of them. But what was shocking was how many of them admitted that they were stuck in the role that they had originally been employed in. And some of them had been in the same role for 25 years. Yeah. So now that's a classic case of stereotyping as well, by the way. So now when it comes to corporates employing, if they fall into the stereotyping trap, here's the here's what happens, is that they assume they know what people with disabilities can do. And so they very often overlook overlook the potential of a person with a disability to fulfill a certain job because they simply can't imagine that the individual could do that job. Yes. Because they have such limited understanding. And so, and this gets worse because you're now seeing more and more. And remember what I said about the compliance in the last episode, I talked a lot about compliance. And so there's a, a frenzy of compliance um, going on. And very often the corporates want to employ people with disabilities, but they don't know how. And so they draw on their assumptions and they think it's all a numbers game and they can just hire a whole bunch of people with disabilities regardless of their levels. And they make it worse by saying things like, we have ring-fenced the jobs we believe can be done by people with disabilities. I mean, that is an extraordinary yeah. indictment on the, the stereotype. You were going to say? I was going to say, and that that immediately reflects the, the the measure of awareness absolutely that <clears throat> someone from that corporate environment brings to that conversation absolutely absolutely and it's it's incredibly limiting because they get all offended when you say well actually no and i mean they say well why why shouldn't we ring fence jobs we believe should be because done they by believe it's protection because well, they yeah believe exactly they, jobs. yeah but but i would say my answer to them is say well would you, would you get away with that if you tried that from a race point of view? Imagine if you said, well, I'm going to ring fence the jobs I believe black people can do. You would never get away with that. Or I'm going to ring fence the jobs that I believe women can do in this company. Jeez, there'd be blood on the walls. You couldn't get away with that either. And so why do you think it's appropriate from a disability point of view? And because there's been such limited exposure of experienced, uh, well-educated skilled people disabilities in many jobs and we know them that's you know this is this is the funny thing you and i both know exceptionally experienced um well-educated um skilled people with disabilities who do huge wonderfully impressive jobs you know i know ceos i know chief financial officers i know every conceivable type of, of person that's that's filled 
You know, we know a judge, a blind judge, you know, that, that sort of thing. It goes on and on and on and on. Even those examples aren't enough, though, because it's still limited in the bigger picture. And so corporates or employers, rather, are very, very um, prone to the stereotype trap. And I always joke with them. I have a little game I play when I teach this stuff is I say, I'd like you to try and find me the job in your company that cannot be done by a person with a disability. And they always fall into the trap because they say, oh, I know what. And I said, what? And they say, a driver. And I say, okay, so what disability can't be a driver? A blind person. I said, yeah, yeah, you're not kidding. We're blind, not stupid. No blind person's ever going to apply for a driver's job. Um, so what disability could be a driver? And then everyone gets it, you know, and then they all shout out, well, you know, you could be hearing impaired or you could have a physical disability of some kind. And then they kind of get it because the, the, the game I'm playing with them is that I'm saying to them, and I'm, I'm categorical about this, if you would have to look very hard to find um, a job that cannot be done by a person with some form of disability. Mm. It could be a psychosocial disability, a physical disability, a sensory disability. Um, but the chances are that you would find you would find an individual with a disability that could do just about any job on earth. And mm. and 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 that's that's what they need to learn. But unfortunately this whole stereotype trap has has unfortunately led them down an incredible rabbit hole, which is which what that and then and then on top of that and this is another issue which we must which we must unpack here is that there are kind of opportunities that that various systems put out to try and increase the numbers of people with disabilities and one of them is a is a, a thing called learnerships now we in this country we have this peculiar thing called a learnership which is a, an opportunity for an entry level person to get a bit of work experience and to learn something of a a, t- a business type skill and the idea is is that they they get paid a little stipend they 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 learn something they attend a business and and somehow that might turn into work and it does actually work to an extent from an able bodied point of view but where it doesn't work invariably is when you throw people with disabilities at this thing um and it's almost always ends in tears because very often the companies have very little interest in hiring them uh they get a great big tax break um by by including a person with a disability in the learnership um and they're happy to have them there but they invariably will not hire them and so the trouble with learnerships is that and many companies hide behind this learnership thing saying oh this is what we're doing to employ more people with disabilities is that they will never entice a highly skilled, well-educated, experienced person with a disability in his 30s, for instance, who through no fault of his own has acquired a disability and really wants to work. And all the opportunities are entry level. And that's that's the kicker, is that far too many employers honestly believe that all the opportunities for disability are at an entry level position. I was so just is, thinking, I was just, you know, I was going to ask that question because if the expectations of what is possible for someone with a disability is low, then someone with the skills, the experience isn't even going to be considered. Because, absolutely. Because the, the stereotype says people with disabilities don't have skills. Yeah. And it becomes a vicious circle. Absolutely a vicious circle, precisely. So then you get your skilled, educated, experienced person trying to find a job, and he's putting his CV out there, Mm. and the moment they hear disability, they disagree him because they honestly don't believe it can be done. Well, they're only, you know, they think, oh, good heavens, no, I, can't, I don't think we can handle him or how oh, he can't possibly do that job, can he? And so CB lands in the dustbin. Um, and so the stereotype trap, make no mistake, is one of the single biggest problems we have in terms of, of, of meaningfully employing people with disabilities. We've got to get out of it. So let's move on from there quickly and look at a couple of others. Um, so I think I forgot that was number four. So number five would be transport. 
we have a major transport problem uh, around the world, let's face it. I mean, many countries do very well, but the moment you go into the rural parts and the smaller towns, even countries which have excellent urban accessible transport, that, that access doesn't isn't nearly as good. And so outside of main centers, um, and sadly in our country, all, in almost the entire fleet of, of transport is inaccessible, bar a couple of exceptions. Um, what it means is that people with, particularly with mobility challenges or mobility, mobility disabilities, such as physical disabilities, will very invariably struggle to get from A to B. And many of them really work hard at doing it. Um, but it's made harder. And so transport is one of the single biggest reasons why we have such low employment rates in this country, because people simply can't, even if they got a job, a wonderful job. And if they, you know, if they, unless they found their own way there, I mean, things like Uber have actually been major game changers for many people with disabilities. It's expensive. It's expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Very expensive. I'm going to ask you a question here that may be difficult to answer because it's, it's a, it's a specific question that I think can feed into the lack of transport. And that is the question of remote working. And particularly remote working as a result of the COVID pandemic. Absolutely. Lois, well done, because that's a, you spotted a really interesting issue here. And, and of course, is it it making prior prior to COVID? That wouldn't even a consideration. As much as we like the idea and some people got it right. I remember, I remember having to work incredibly hard to convince an employer that a, a, a very gifted IT individual with a very significant physical disability would absolutely be able to work from home. And they fought and fought and fought. No, I can't possibly do it. The network would be vulnerable and, you know, it would be too risky and it would be setting a precedent. And and literally a year later, after I got them right, and they, they said, oh, all right. And they made this guy. I mean, they put up a hell of a fuss. And literally a year later, COVID hit. And that large employer, who incidentally employs, it's a big government employer, and they, they employ 200,000 people, um, at the stroke of a pen said, oh, absolutely, you can work from home. Now, what so the COVID has done a wonderful thing for us as persons with disabilities is because it's given us the, the chance to say, well, what do you mean? Look what we just went through. Clearly, we can. Now, not everybody can work from home. Not every job is able to work from home, you know, a lab technician or a cleaner or, you know, a hands-on fitter and turner type engineer can't exactly work from home, right? So there are many jobs that cannot literally work from home. But I would I would say, I don't think I'm sticking my neck out too far to say that majority of white-collar jobs could be done from home. And COVID has proved that. So this is going to be a game changer. You're right. And and it's terrific, actually. It's huge potential. Huge potential. Yeah, there's potential. Uh, so watch that space. There's potential, but it does depend on the willingness of the employer yes. to allow. Oh, absolutely. Working. Sure, sure, sure. And and that's that's exactly right. And that's why the the greatest challenge. Oh, I'm gonna. Well, the next one. I'm gonna number six will be accessibility. Mm. And I'll, I'll I'll touch on on the attitude just now, but so accessibility is another major challenge. Now we're seeing evidence. I mean, I've been in this twenty four years, so I, I can, there's no question. I've seen some evidence of willingness to change from an uh, and and more and more things are looking like they want to be accessible, and that's great, great news. Um, the fact is, though, is that we still have incredible numbers of facilities which are inaccessible. Um, and, you know, have not yet been uh, retrofitted to make them more accessible. So access is another big challenge. But my my take on access is that I, I don't believe there's such a thing as physical inaccessibility. It's a hell of a statement to make. It is. And it is. And you know why? Because those things didn't build themselves. 
Not a single building, not a single flight of steps ever built themselves. They were built by people. The problem isn't access. The problem is attitudinal awareness. If architects, designers, property developers, facilities managers were to were to think a little more about access from the beginning and were to embrace the idea of access, universal accessibility from the beginning, we wouldn't be in the pickle we're in. You can't blame the building. The building didn't build itself. It was built by a person or people. Those are the people who need to be shifted. And so attitudinal accessibility is our greatest challenge, which is why I do the work I do. I'm not an architect. I can't build a building. But what I can do is I can help get people to look at things differently. And if more people questioned the issue of universal access, we would have less inaccessibility, categorically. But unfortunately, we come out of an old paradigm which literally said, well, you know, they don't really fit in because they have disabilities. And very few of them have really embraced the notion that they don't, people with disabilities don't fit in because there is so many barriers in the way. I think on the, at this point, let me just say something quite interesting is the, is to look at the United Nations Convention, um, and look at the definition. I'll, I'll paraphrase it. I won't say it absolutely verbatim, but paraphrasing it, the, there, the definition of the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities reads like this. You have a disability if you have a long-term sensory, physical, or psychosocial impairment that in combination with various barriers prevent people's equal um, access, uh, equal access to opportunity along with others. I've, I've scrambled it a bit at the end there. So I'll say it again. You have a disability if you have a long-term physical, sensory, or psychosocial impairment that in combination with various barriers prevent your equal participation in society with others. And so the word barriers there is incredibly important. Yeah. And slowly that penny is dropping, slowly that penny is dropping. And I, I, I predict that 25 years time, it'll look, it'll look very different. I suspect in 25 odd years time, we're probably going to see quite a different landscape attitudinally and uh, resulting in physical changes being more apparent. And you can see it in many countries where. I, yeah. I, I was just thinking. And you, you, you've traveled way more than I have. You've seen examples of great access, haven't you? I have. And I, I think <clears throat> primarily what I'm seeing is small changes. But together, those small changes add up to a significant degree of difference in people's mm. lives. And mm, absolutely, we still have a long way to go. But yeah, sure. in, in every area, I mean, I'm hearing and seeing more awareness around physical access. That's right. Where more yeah. people are and beginning to think about, hang on, but this isn't accessible exactly. for everyone. Exactly. Exactly. And, now, and in, in every that's, Now, that's really important because it's the people thinking that access, people have for a long time have blamed the issue on the physical infrastructure rather than the people. And the people are beginning to switch on. Um, we have a, I have a cartoon, you know how much I love my cartoons. <laughs> and so I have a, one of my favorite cartoons my daughter drew for me. Um, so I have, I get ideas in my head and then I get cartoonists to draw them. And she did a wonderful cartoon of a, of a, um, a you see a roadway and on the right hand side in the roadway, there's a whole bunch of people in a sort of traffic jam and they're people with all conceivable types of disabilities and they're all piled up in a traffic jam. And the reason there's a traffic jam, well, let me tell you the destination. On the other side of the road, on the left-hand side, is this big, beautiful, gorgeous-looking edifice uh, with a big archway and the archway at the cross says universal access. In other words, that's the destination. And the reason there's a traffic jam is there's this individual in the middle of the road with his head in the sand and he's been, you know, and, and he's, he's labeled architects, property developers, facilities managers, et cetera. And, um, there's a big book over his head and the book reads, the book title is section S of the building regulations. In our country, it's called SANS, S-A-N-S 10 400. And section S is the chapter, um, 
on access. And it's world-class. There's nothing wrong with it at all. And so somebody in the group that's in this traffic jam, somebody shouts, we're never going to get there at this rate. And somebody else says, you know, if only they would just read the book. And this is the this is the indictment that I put to that entire community. Um, and they cannot fight me on it because it's categorically true, is that they simply haven't put the energy into access until fairly recently where they're starting to wake up. Because, and I've seen it for myself, how many architects have never heard of Section S or have never consulted Section S? And if they had, we wouldn't have the inaccessibility we have. And so they often blame us on the fact that access is so expensive. And it's absolute nonsense. Access isn't expensive. What's expensive is retrofitting. Yes. If you build access in from scratch, it's not expensive at all. Um, but they won't. And they are beginning to think now. And that's that's really, really good because there's a, there's a lot more access auditors out there. There's a lot more uh, consultants who are, who are playing in the space now than they used to be. I mean, literally 20 years ago, there were three people. There were three people in this country who were skilled enough to do this work. But now I would be surprised if there are as many as 100. Um, in fact, it's probably half that, frankly. Um, and you can't, they, they can't possibly make an impact, you know, on the, unless, unless the actual community of that particular infrastructure community wakes up. Anyway, so moving on, I want to end with one last reality check is the is the notion of people disabilities or rather able-bodied people don't realize something they forget a, a very important element which is that it could also be them mm. it could happen to them now i don't like selling this idea from a fair point of view like like you know insurance is sold on fear you know, sign here before it happens to you. That's a classic insurance thing, right? Yeah. That's fear. The The idea that it could be you is not about fear. It's about power. And let me explain that. In diversity terms, disability is quite unique in that it's the only form of diversity that en masse can grow. In other words, if you look at diversity from a racial point of view, you've got, you've got black, white, brown in our country, Right. Now, the, those never change. You can't cross over your race. You know, you're always, if you're born a black person, you're likely to die a black person, et cetera, right? When it comes to gender, it, there is a little bit of more of a complication now because there is definitely, a, a, you know, there's a, there's a trans, a transformation potential, but it's also very, very rare. So, but when it comes to disability, it could happen to absolutely anybody tomorrow. I always say that, you know, I was saying in a, in a room full of people, not one of us in this room, including me, is immune to having a disability tomorrow. Yeah. And, you know, it's a shock horror, right? And I think, <gasps> and I say, no, relax, relax, relax. I'm not trying to frighten you. I'm not trying to frighten you. But what that, what that does, what the, the, where the uniqueness comes from is that disability has that wonderful opportunity to be able to, when it, if you think about disability and you think that it could be you, it gives you the, the, the the notion that you can relate to it. We as white people could not possibly relate to the experiences of black people growing up under apartheid. Doesn't matter how progressive we were, okay? It wasn't it wasn't our movie because we were white and privileged by definition. But when it comes to disability, you can relate because it can be anybody's reality. And so anybody can actually relate to somebody else having a disability simply because it could have been them or could be them. And they can literally say to themselves, this could be me, and it would be absolutely true. And so the next time that people make a decision about or involving a person with a disability, and it could be a stranger in the street, it could be a, a staff member, there, a colleague, it could be a family member, and you think to yourself, I don't have enough information, I don't know what to do. You know what? What's the, what decision should I make here? And I always say, relax. You do. You've got plenty of information inside you, because you simply have to put yourself in those shoes. Because God knows they could be your shoes, and you say, 
what would I expect if it was me? And then you make that decision. And I believe that if more people thought like this, uh, we would have far greater, far greater disability inclusion uh, potential. I'm Have I stunned you into silence, Lois? I'm, I'm stuck <laughs> with a with a with a problem here, though, mm. because if you ask someone mm -hmm. to 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 try and view a decision based on what they think might happen. If they were experience, you know, to experience a disability, mm -hmm. their lack of knowledge, which we've already mm -hmm. spoken about earlier, saying sure, how, sure, it, sure, how it impacts sure. on the ring fencing of, of employment and of jobs, the, the lack of awareness resulting in limited expectations, mm -hmm. surely that becomes a problem in this aspect? I don't think one needs to overthink this. I know where you're going, and I, I mean, you've got a point, but I wouldn't overthink this. I think what I'm trying to illustrate here in, a, in quite a loose way here is that we need to appreciate that, that this is something that, that is closer to us than we have previously believed. Mm. And that um, the, reason I, I fo the reason I focus on that yeah. – sorry, were you saying? Did you it say however? It's, it's not other. It's not, it, it's the, that experience, that reality is that it's not an us versus them other thing. It could exactly. be us. Yes, indeed, indeed. And just that alone. But the other thing I'm illustrating is if they put themselves in those shoes and it's, I mean, let's take a, let's take an experienced person. He's got, 15, 16 years experience, he's losing his vision through no fault of his own. Now, he's not nothing will take his experience, his education, his skill away. With technology, you and I both know that he's still capable of, 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 of absolutely um, competitive employment or competitive productivity. And now my point here that I'm making is that if the employer were to put themselves in those shoes, they too would realize they would realize, you know, I've got skill, I've got education, I've got training. Um, why wouldn't I give this guy a go? Why wouldn't, you know, how would I feel if I said, no, I don't think you could do the job? And so what I'm trying to get them to do is to think a little bit more and by literally putting themselves, if they had that experience, skill, training, how would they feel if somebody else said, nah, don't think you can do it? And that's really what I'm trying to get people to sort of put people in people's shoes more so that they start thinking about that. Um, you know, I do, a, I do an exercise in, in my workshops. One of the, it's a visualization exercise and I in, in part won't go into it now, but one of the things that I say is you, 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 you're going to be going to work now with your disability that I've just given you, but, and you want to work. You have to work. You've got bills to pay. You've got mouths to feed. You don't have a choice. You can't suddenly not go to work. You do want to work. And I, I say that deliberately because I want them to, to understand the impact and the incredible visceral reaction that, and you and I both know this because we've both experienced it probably, perhaps you more than I, but um, the, 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 of, well, I'm not sure you can do that job. Or, no, I don't think this application is, you know, I don't think this, you know, it's not a good enough. And so there's the, the judgment against the disability without taking into account the individual's actual job expertise. And so I'm, I'm a great advocate for skilled people disabilities. And you and I both belong to a group, in fact, you know, professionals. Remember the blind professionals group that we started. And and I, do, I I support that very strongly because they are the ones actually who are being let down even more than entry level because there's this. So that's all I'm trying to do with that little thing about putting yourself in those shoes. I don't think one needs to overthink it. It's I'm just trying to get them to to realize that there's way more to this business. 
Jeremy, as yeah. with your last, the last episode, much, much food for thought. So, Thank you. And yes. Where are we going to take the conversation next with the third lens? Right. So the third lens, and my favorite lens of all, is, is stop fixating on employment alone and start looking at people with disabilities as consumers as well. Do we understand the business case? Is there a business case? And so that's what we're going to be talking next time. Um, and and I'm, sh- I'm sure you're going to have a really fascinating perspective on giving us an answer to that question. I hope so. I hope so. I look forward to trying to do that. If people want to reach out to you and learn more about you and the work you're doing or ask any questions as a result of the conversation we've had so far, how can they reach you? So I can be found through my website, which is www.disabilitydesk.co.za, or my email address would be jeremy at disabilitydesk.co.za. Otherwise, they can find me on LinkedIn through my name. Great. Jeremy, thank you very much for a, a slightly daunting, if, you know, definitely valuable, but none, nonetheless quite daunting thought process that you've shared with us today. And I think daunting is important, you know, um, because that's part of the reality check. We need to wake up to the realities, and reality can be daunting. Um, But, yes, thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure, and I look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to A Different Way of Seeing. We'd love to connect with you. So find Lois at loistrachen.com or Facebook, Lois Strachan Speaker. This podcast was edited by Craig Strachan using Hindenburg Pro. Hindenburg, it's all about the story. The credits are done at Naledi Media. Naledi Media, all your vocal needs under one roof. Read by Charlie Jassy. That's it for now. Thank you for joining us and see you next time when we bring you into the world of seeing differently. Thank you.